This is CliffCentral.com. There's actually a little bit of an interesting story about how that jingle was made and how we put it together, but I'll leave that for another day. Welcome back. You're listening to the Daily Maverick Show. My name is Greg Nicholson, and I'm joined in studio by studio by my colleague Pusleto Ntate. How are you, Pusleto? I'm good, and you, Greg? How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Trying to keep up with the news and get by. Um, and what sort of a week it's been, hey? Um, I think in a minute we'll be talking to our colleague Karim Duplessis, who's been travelling around the country, uh, attending all of these different ANC campaign rallies, election events from Kosozana Dlamini Zuma, Cyril Ramaphosa. So she's got some really interesting insight as to just how these campaigns are taking place and how now they've moved into the branches and how the branches are now and the ANC members on the ground are now, t- now taking these issues forward. After that, we'll be speaking to uh, the Daily Mavericks' Jay Brooks Spector. Brooks has been following very closely. I don't think he's had a chance to write about it yet, but he's been following very closely the recent conference of the Chinese Communist Party. Mm. As most of our listeners might know, they hold a very big conference every five years to basically decide the future of their party. And we know that the Chinese president, uh, Xi Jinping, we'll have to get that right by the time Brooks comes on the air, yeah, um, has... <laughs> has also sort of secured a very important position now in terms of the future of the party and China. After that, we'll also be sticking with Asia, and we're going to be looking at at the recent elections that were held in Japan, where uh, um, the leader of Japan, Shinzo Abe, was recently re-elected. I think we've got Corinne Duplessis on the line. Can you hear us, Corinne? Just a second. Let's try that again. Hello, Corinne. Can you hear us? Uh, yes, yeah, I can, I can. Thanks for joining us. Yes, where we've got you. So, Corinne, we now know that the ANC, the ANC um, leadership race is fully underway. And we know as well that in this race, in this race especially, that the branches are crucial in the nomination and voting process. Now, you went out to Clerkstorp this weekend to see a branch decide on its nominations for, for its preferred ANC leaders. Can you just tell us a little bit about those of us who haven't been through this process, about what you learned from sitting in on this branch and, and what you saw there about how the ANC election process is unfolding? Yes, this is very interesting. There are about 4,000 branches um, just that, that will be going to the conference. So um, so I imagine that this process that I went to is, is um, repeated about 4,000 times all over the country. Um, but it's a branch. This branch had about 200 members, which makes it, an average size branch. You need about a hundred members to be a branch. Um, so, it, and and they have to to have a quorum for the meeting to have enough people according to ANC rules. You need half, I think, fifty percent plus one. So they needed about a hundred, a hundred and one members to attend in order to take decisions. That process in itself, um, on a Sunday afternoon, it was supposed to start at two. That process took four hours. Uh, and they had to, there was this one guy in the branch who was really pushing for Cyril Ramaphosa to be nominated against the wishes of the province, I must add. So he was, he was really asked on the battle path and he went and he, um, he mobilized all the people that he knew would support Cyril Ramaphosa to come to this meeting. And, and yeah, so after, so around six o'clock, the meeting uh, at last got underway. Um, you know, everybody has, has to sign a branch register. And that process is, is very carefully checked, and there's a watermarked copy of the branch register that comes from the city house that people have to sign, and that that is sealed as evidence that, that the members were actually there. 
controlled or supposedly very carefully controlled process. Um, and when the media actually started that I think to leave because um, journalists don't have the automatic right to attend these meetings and I guess the media some safe to the base. So, so I left and um, about three and a half hours later um, the meeting ended and they allowed me to interview uh, the, the chairperson of the branch and, you know, people who were going to this to, to the conference. And it was interesting because there were obviously differences. There were people who supported in Kosozana, Lamin Hizuma. Uh, one of the guys um, who's close to the premier to, uh, to the, and who's also, also the ANC uh, chairperson in the province, uh, Supramo he came with a body, three bodyguards actually. Wow. <laughs> He's a municipal manager. And this bodyguard, the big burly guy, was standing there checking out people as they entered the venue. And in that municipality specifically, there's been a few political hits. Uh, you know, somebody was murdered just before the Mangaung conference, and there's been a few murders in the province. So people were a bit jumpy, um, and they were a bit concerned about the the guy, uh, one of the guys there, one of the, his safety. So, so all those kind of things. I mean, this was a tame meeting, I guess, in comparison to what happened in the Free State. Uh, apparently somebody brought a knife with to that meeting. And there was uh, he stabbed somebody that he disagreed with. Um, so it was, it was, and I mean, it was quite sort of orderly in a sense. I didn't see any chairs being thrown around at the meeting. So, so in a way, it was orderly. But the contestation is fierce, and people are working really hard on the ground to get the candidates they want, uh, to nominate the candidates they want, and to get the delegates that they want to send to the conference. It's a really highly contested process, and also it takes time. It took. Mm. I think we left there just before 10 that evening, and, you know, the meeting was supposed to start at 2, so it takes time. How do the branches really have the power in this process that we're told they have, or are they sort of under much stronger influence from their regions and their provinces across the country? Uh, well, this branch uh, this branch meeting showed that they're not necessarily... Uh, you know, there was a lot of pressure. Like I said, one of the guys who was there was uh, close to Supramo Matelo, the premier, who prefers Mukosa's Anad Lamini Zuma. But this other guy, um, you know, he used to be the, the deputy chair in the province and long process, he was kicked out. Uh, so he really wanted Cyril. So he mobilized really hard and he got he got what he wanted. You know, he got the nomination that he wanted for Cyril. Mm-hmm. So, so in a way, yeah, the branches do have power. And I've seen the list. Um, yesterday, some list came through of how branches nominated, and you know, Gauteng predictably most people nominated, or most branches nominated Cyril Ramaphosa, but there are branches that nominated Mposa So these branches are not necessarily following the provincial line, mm-hmm. although I think there's a lot of pressure from the top. I mean, this meeting on Sunday, uh, one of the, the provincial executive committee members that came to oversee the meeting was also another very close ally of, of the Premier of Supra. Um, he, he's called Matthew Volmerans, and I don't know if you recall... The former mayor was, charged with murder, right? Yeah, he was charged with murder. He was sent to jail, <laughs> uh, convicted of murder, spent I don't know how long in jail. Uh, he, he was convicted of murdering uh, uh, the whistleblower in the municipality where he was mayor in Rustenburg, I think 2009. And then eventually there was another application from his side, and he got acquitted, and he um, he's now an MP. But um, but also the evidence he was acquitted on, you know, those guys were charged with perjury. It's just, it's just a very messy kind of terrain. But 
So the branch branch general meetings are still underway and all this nomination process is still going going on. What happens from here once once so let's say if we say this branch in Clerkstorp uh submits its nomination, how does that feed into December's elective conference? Um yeah, they submit the, the nominations uh, they've put in a sealed envelope and these goes to these go to provincial general councils, which are held, I think they'll be held towards the end of November, beginning of December. And there the candidates will be formally nominated. Um, and I think to be nominated, you need 15% of the branch nominations to to actually be nominated as a candidate, which uh, I think we, I worked it out with somebody yesterday, which I think between 600 and 700 nominations, um, which is quite a lot, because I mean, interestingly, I was looking at William Kizer, you know, who, how many branches nominated him. And from the results that I saw, from the nominations I saw, there was only one branch that nominated him. So, for instance, you know, he, if he doesn't make the cut, then he won't get nominated. So then, yeah, so then all these nominations go in sealed envelopes to the Provincial General Council, and there the formal nominations are, are made, you know, for the conference. And then... Um, and then, you know, at the conference, obviously, people will vote. So I think the nominations will be a good indication as to who mobilized well, um, you know, who, which of the candidates is likely to get the most votes. Although, you know, the final say will obviously be um, at the conference on the 16th of December. Um, then the branches will have to find all the delegates to go, they will have the final say. And... And I'm told, because I asked, I asked these branches, I said, well, what if you tell your delegates to vote for Cyril and they get to the conference and they decide, actually, you know, they'd rather vote for Nkosozana Vlamini Zuma or for Zeli Nkize. Um, and apparently there's no way these branches can tell that the delegate will actually vote for the person they tell them to vote for. They don't think that they used to... They, there was a thing, I think, in going where people took in cell phones where they voted on a piece of paper and they took pictures of these votes and sent it back to the branch to, to show that they voted for the right person. But um, I understand this time that it might not be allowed. So, so there's no way of telling. That's, it it that, will be very interesting. To that's see. incredible to think of the the whole administrative nightmare that the ANC goes through, trying to hold thousands of branch meetings across the country. And then it comes down to one guy or, or one woman who, you know, in, in a polling booth who can actually just go whichever way they want and, and who knows whether they've been bought or they've been influenced in a certain way. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. But I think that's why at the branch meetings, that's why you make sure that you choose someone you can trust. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they get, and normally, I mean, normally at the branch meetings, the guys who get to go to these conferences, uh, they might be a counsellor or they might be a person of some standing in the community. So, uh, because, you know, you have to be normally like a branch chairperson that gets to go or somebody in the branch leadership. So it's not somebody who's completely illiterate or politically stupid or anything. Mm. But, but yeah, it is a concern. And um, I've heard 
stories. Somebody told me at this branch meeting that she had seen in the hotels where, where the Delhi could stay people walking around with black bags full of money, you know, slung over their shoulders and, and dishing out cash to, to people to vote in a certain way. Um, and then, you know, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, fine, you know, we'd happily take the cash, uh, but then we'll go and vote for whoever we want to. That's true, because even, even the people have, paying them don't know which way they're going to vote. <laughs> so exactly, you just like hope for the best. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't think people are stupid. Um, and I remember in 2007, um, when the nominations were done by the Provincial General Council, uh, you know, as journalists, we were quite, people were sort of some Betty's guys were telling us how he's doing well, he's quietly mobilizing, he's not making the most noise, but Betty's doing well. And then the Provincial General Councils came, and, um, you know, from what our population, Zuma was getting the most nominations, uh, you know, the percentages in the province just added up in favor of Zuma. And then the Betty guy said, oh no, you know, don't worry, that's. Uh, our guys are just holding back. They're just shy. When um, you know, when we go to Polokwane, when we vote, you will see these guys will all vote for Mbeki. And and that didn't happen. <laughs> so I kind of think you know people do have integrity, despite what we might think, and despite how easy we think white people. Um, mm-hmm. They do have integrity. Uh, so they are. So no. I think we will know about the end of the Month. Do we know, Corinne, how, how many branches have um, gone through the nomination process yet? Um, no, I haven't. I mean, we've, I've seen some figures, but then the little Ramaphosa guys say, no, this is, I mean, you know, this is their, uh, what do you call it, their propaganda. But there was, there was figures showing, I think, 360 branches in favor of Nkosu Zuma and 230 in favor of Cyril which would make it around roughly five to 600 branches that have gone to their, um, to their nomination process or to their branch general meeting. Um, so, yeah, but I'm not sure those figures are correct. It's, very, mm-hmm. it's unverified. And there's, I don't think there's any way to check really at this point. I think maybe by the middle of the week we might, we might try and ask the ANC how it's been going. But, um, but I'm, just, I'm just wondering, because it branches with 1,000 to 3,000 members, and I am not sure how they will ever be able to, to get enough people for a forum to hold their meetings, you know, to get a thousand, five hundred or, you know, thousands of their members together. So, um, so it's going to be interesting. And it's going to, I think it's going to get a lot more heated towards the deadline, which I suspect is mid-November. It's going to get a lot, these branch meetings are going to get a lot more heated um, as the deadline approach. So... It's so, gonna, yeah, it's going to yeah. be fun to watch. Now you mentioned <laughs> the, <laughs> the ANC Treasurer General as well, Mkize, who who has been now punted as this sort of dark horse or a unity option. You mentioned at the moment it looks like he might only have one one nomination as, as president from one branch. Now, if we look at Zwali, we look at guys like um, Jeff Radebe, Lindue Sasulu, Baleka Mbete. Do these candidates, now we're at this stage of the race, do these candidates stand any sort of chance of leading the party in December? Or do you think now they're sort of trying to jostle to get other top six positions? Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, I'm not sure what Willing Kizer's game is at this point because he must know that he's not going to, he hasn't got that much support. Hmm. But I think that kind of, um, and, you know, and the other members, I think Lindiwe Sisulu, I saw she got one nomination in the Eastern Cape. So she's not completely out of out of the race, 
But people in the Eastern Cape tell me that Israeli uh, Mkhize has been nominated as deputy to Cyril Ramaphosa by a lot of the branches. So, um, so it might be that he's jostling for that kind of a position um, and that, you know, that they're still kind of campaigning in order to strengthen their hand to negotiate a good position on a slate. Uh, so I suspect I suspect they're doing that, but some of them might also just be misled by their campaigners. Some mm-hmm. of, a lot of the campaigners get paid for, for running these campaigns. So it's, a, it's kind of a job creation thing. So the campaigner will keep on telling them, no, you're doing well, We've, you've got support. Um, but it's just kind of you know, just to keep themselves in a the job in a way. Uh, so, so there's that possibility as well uh, that, um, that they're actually just being misled. But there is a chance still for them to get nominated if they don't get nominated by the branches because uh, there's a rule in the ANC that say if you get 25% of the delegates at the conference on the conference floor to nominate you, then you can also run. And I, I'm just trying to think if that was the way that Khalena Mutlante, for instance, if that's how he ran for president in, in 2012 against, against President Zuma. Um, but yeah, so you have to get 25% of the hands on the conference floor. Uh, I'm not sure how they would achieve that or what, you know, maybe if there's a big blow up at the conference and people get so tired of factions that, that they might go for the unity candidate. But, um, but my thing about the ANC's race, it's more like a soccer, like a soccer match, just a mm-hmm. football match, you know. You have your team and you support your team till this, till this uh, part kind of thing. Um, and, very few people would kind of cheer for the referee, uh, you know, for the compromise candidate. So, so I don't really see that scenario happening, but it is still a possibility, theoretically. Now, Corinne, you've been on the campaign trail this weekend with Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa, who was campaigning in the Northwest. And I think a lot of people would... You know, just assume that's normal. He's the deputy president. He's running for running for the presidency of the ANC. But why are his visits to the province stirring such controversy? Um, well, the provincial leadership, uh, Supramaho Mapelo, as I said before, they don't support. They support, of course, Zanadami Zuma, and they kind of they kind of feel that you know they don't want to host Cyril Ramaphosa because he's not their candidate. So, and they also want it to be known. I presume, you know, they want President Zuma to know and the people, they want to send out the message that, uh, that, that, that they're not behind Cyril. Um, and it's clever. I mean, Ramaphosa's been clever to get around this kind of thing because uh, on Saturday it was FASCO, the student's body, that invited him to the meeting. Um, previously, you might remember in May, uh, Ramaphosa went to KwaZulu-Natal and he was invited by an ANC branch there, and it stirred quite a lot of controversy, controversy in the province with the provincial leadership saying that you can't, you know, if, if the ANC invites you, it has to come through us. So now he's, he's kind of been evading that by getting Sasko, or um, a week or two ago, he got the Young Communist League to invite him to Brazil and Natal. So, so then the ANC in the province can't do anything, you know, if they don't support him, they can't kind of stop him because... It's not one of these structures that invited him, and you know, it's a free country, and we don't want to create no-go areas. So that's kind of why. Um, but interestingly enough, I mean, they didn't. Cause I thought perhaps people would not try and disrupt the meeting on, on Saturday. Uh, you know, Sutra might send his people to disrupt or to, to protest in front of the meeting, but, but nothing like that happened. Um, the meeting went ahead. There was no sign of people wanting to disrupt it. So, um, so yeah, so I think that. 
kind of then not wanting to give more publicity to Ramaphosa's meeting. I feel like I find, you know, mm-hmm. let him go ahead. But if we come and disrupt it, it will still stir such controversy. It will give him free publicity. So, um, so yeah, but it was controversial. And I, I heard from the university, the University of the North West that hosted him, you know, that provided the, the venue, um, that Mama Pella wasn't happy. He expressed his unhappiness. And there was some... Some politics and university management about this as well, and some of the uh, some of the management didn't attend. They they just um, they just had other things to do on Saturday. So, so it is controversial, and I think um, yeah, it's, 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 to me, it's, it hasn't got a good feel about it. But um, but it's good that Ramaphosa could actually go there, and that the meeting could go ahead with no massive consequence. Uh, you know, in terms of. Uh, Silence and so on. So, so that was good. Now, Karina, I know it's a busy day for you and, and for all of us covering the news. I, I don't think there's any sort of quiet days these days, but I've just got one more question before I let you go. Um, I think we have to touch a little bit on President Zuma. Last week, he controversially reshuffled cabinet once again. Uh, most notably, he replaced the SACP General Secretary, Bladen Zamande, as Higher Education and Training Minister, and he appointed David Matlobo as Energy Minister. Will this latest reshuffle, do you think, have any effect on the ANC leadership race? Um, the, yeah, interesting question. I think the, the reshuffles, what it does is that every time he does something like that, um, you know, reshuffle without apparently consulting the ANC, uh, the top six say they were informed about it, but not really consulted that deeply. Um, every time he does that, he, he creates, you know, they, they get a little bit more tired of him. And also the fact that he sacked Bladen Zimandi from the SACP, it might mean, you know, the SACP was itself a little bit uh, hostile toward, well, was hostile, critical um, of him beforehand, and they now feel it's all out war. But in a way, um, I don't think it would make that much of a difference to to the leadership race for December because um, the SACP was kind of a faint force. And I, I got the idea, you know, on Saturday, one of the SACP speakers also said, you know, it's all out, you know, Zuma is kind of challenging us. But I haven't seen anybody on the streets yet uh, protesting. Or, yeah, I, I just don't, I don't think they have any, any force. They're a bit of a faint force in the ANC. So I don't think it would it would make that much of a difference, but I do think you know people are getting a little bit more tired of him each time he does he does this kind of thing. Karin Duplessis, Daily Maverick journalist, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we'll hopefully chat to you soon, and we'll be following all your articles on the Daily Maverick. Thank you, Greg. That was Corinne Duplessis talking about the ANC's election race. It's great, great if you want to sort of follow her, her articles. She's really, really sort of running around the country, going to all different provinces to see how, how this campaigning and, and, and the front runners, how their different campaigns are playing out on the ground. One way to stay in touch with our work here at the Daily Maverick is to follow our newsletters. Uh, yeah, our newsletters. <laughs> you can go to the Daily Maverick website, just scroll down. You can subscribe to the morning newsletter, the afternoon newsletter, the weekend one, and they'll give you a full information about about what we do and, and you'll be able to stay up to date with the latest news from uh, South Africa and around the world. Now, if you want to have a newsletter just like ours, go to www.touchbracepro.com. You can click and book a demo. 
they're great. They show you how to use the system. They share the screen with you while you, while you set it up. It takes about 20 minutes to do, and you don't even have to give a commitment. Okay, let's change tack a little bit now. I'm going to chat to Brooks Spector about politics in China and Japan. Brooks, are you with us? Hello, Brooks, are you with us? Okay, we'll figure out what's going on there and try to get Brooks back on the line. Pusoletso, you've also been covering some of these issues and you've, you put a database together of some of these branches across the country. And I know it's a mammoth task because there's something like 5,000 ANC branches across the country, isn't there? Yeah, and you have to call every number, you know, to confirm if, like, if you, are you still a secretary or mm-hmm. uh, coordinator? From what Corinne was saying, I think it's sort of fascinating just in how what an administrative nightmare this must be for the ANC. So, like she said, they have to get a quorum at each event, at each nomination process. So it means they have to have at least half of their members there, I think. And then, obviously, they have to dispute and, you know, argue and stuff like that. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it gets quite, quite rough. I can only imagine what a headache it would be for ANC Secretary General Guadamantashe trying to pull this all together, sort of, I, I would not like to be in his shoes, but I'm told right now we do have Brooks Spector back on the line. Brooks, can you hear us? I can hear you now. I'll speak up a bit if you can. Fantastic, Brooks. I'll, I'll do my best. I know we do come from different generations. Yeah, well, I got one good ear and one bad one. <laughs> Brooks, let's start with China first. So the Chinese Communist Party has been meeting, as it does every five years, and President Xi Jinping um, has recently has really consolidated his leadership over there. Can you just tell us what has been happening in the conference over in China and and what it means for the country? Yeah, good. It, I mean, it, this is a story which probably is being underreported here. I would step back one step, and China's the second largest economy on the planet uh, will eventually become the largest economy, and it is an enormously important uh, source of. Uh, purchases from this country as well as exports to South Africa and increasingly um, exports of uh, foreign direct investment into the South African economy. And so whatever happens in China uh, should be of great uh, interest and uh, concern or excitement, depending on how things play out. Um, The key thing is, of course, to remember that the, the Communist Party of China effectively leads the country. The government follows the lead of the party. And what Xi Jinping has done in this particular case over the last five years since he became the the head of the country and head of the party, um, he has consolidated the importance once again of the party as the leadership, the, uh, the forerunner for the rest of society. And in the process, uh, his words, his ideas, and his thoughts are now enshrined in the party's constitution in a way that only Mao Zedong and, to some degree, Deng Xiaoping uh, have succeed, succeeded in having happened. What that means is that he's consolidated his hold over the intellectual guts of the party. Now, there are also a significant number of people down the hierarchy, down the food chain, who are set to retire or have are in the process of retiring from the party, really. Uh, and he will be, for the next five years, able to put an extraordinarily deep stamp on the makeup of the party as well as the way the hierarchy falls, who is 
set to succeed whom within the various institutions, committees, uh, and uh, agenda-seeking uh, elements within the party. Let me just read you a short paragraph out of The Economist, which was a scene-setter for the, uh, the upcoming Party Congress. Uh, and this, this refers to uh, Xi Jinping's interest in, once again, restating the absolute uh, dominance of the party over Chinese leadership. But as he knows, that's only a start. Every leader since Mao has wrestled with questions about the Communist Party's legitimacy, and Mr. Xi is no exception. For years, economic growth provided the party's mandate of heaven. But growth is slowing, inequality is rising, and middle-class concerns about housing, education, and health care cannot be allayed by simply ladling on an extra point of gross domestic, gross domestic product. Uh, in that sense, Xi Jinping is caught in the, the problem, the challenge, that although the economy continues to grow, although at a slightly slower pace than it has in the past, uh, middle-class uh, demands for all the things that middle-class people want uh, are going to continue unless he can reestablish really firmly and decisively the way the party articulates these demands and then puts them uh, into place uh, on the on the government's hierarchy. It's a real challenge for him, um, but uh, he, so far at least, seems to have had everything going his way. Does Brooks, this new consolidation he's been able to achieve, does it allow Xi Jinping any new powers? Well, that will be something that he is going to determine. I mean, his his powers remain effectively uh, institutionally what they were uh, in the past five years, but he is going to, uh, going forward, add further to the way he shapes how these powers are used. One of the things that we have to all watch for now is who follows Xi Jinping, because it's been traditional within the Chinese Communist Party that at the second five-year term, if the leader has managed to hold on for, you know, five years and then ten, is that they've designated their uh, favorite successor, and that doesn't appear yet to have been the case, although uh, it it may become clear soon enough. Uh, And if that's the case, then you run the possibility, at least, given Xi's um, personality, given his drive and his determination and his, uh, and his interest in reinstilling a degree of uh, coherence and energy to the party, that could argue for his uh, exerting his leadership, in a sense, from the grave that is no longer in the official uh, presidency of the party, but by virtue of being able to dictate who, what his successor would be doing. That would then put him in the position of, of having at least a 15-year run, in effect, of control over the party and over the country, which for China will be quite something extraordinary. Now, I was reading today somewhere that it said those hoping for sort of Western-style reforms in China, they now seem very unlikely, and that's most likely not the direction uh, Jinping will take the country now that he has really consolidated his leadership. Is that true? I think that's a, I think that's a fair statement. Uh, Xi Jinping uh, has a substantial 
uh, certainly for uh, Chinese leadership patterns, has had a substantial experience with the West. He understands what, uh, how it works and what it works and what it does, as well as what it doesn't do. And the thing that, that he has been most concerned with uh, throughout his career, and now certainly in the last five years, and then going forward for the next half decade, is the centrality and the legitimacy of the party as the control mechanism of government and country. Um, to do that means that he does not see the the, the rowdy, uh, untidy, rumpled version of democratic politics as practiced in the U.S. and the West and other places as the exemplar to be followed. Uh, it doesn't mean that he is going to make major changes, presumably, on the economic front, but that's because his real focus of attention has been on party legitimacy and party dominance. Uh, I think he's perfectly happy, as far as I can read, um, in allowing the economic uh, policies to continue, this uh, state capitalism stroke, independent capitalism, but with government control uh, to continue rolling forward. Remember, China has had this enormous growth in millionaires and billionaires, as well as this this vast outpouring of consumer goods, but the economy as a whole has been turning slowly but surely to providing more and more goods uh, to meet domestic consumption needs rather than export-driven growth. And I don't think, from what I've been able to read about it, about uh, the lead-up to the uh, party meeting and the results so far, uh, I don't think you're going to see much in the way of changes in economic policy. What about... We know uh, Jinping del- delivered a mammoth, I think it was a three-and-a-half-hour speech during during the Communist Party conference. Did he say anything or signal any shifts um, in China's role on the global stage? Um, you know, he, how to describe it? Um, he's already pretty much set out these things. Um, the Belt and Road Initiative, you remember, this, this ambitious idea that there will be a great investment in infrastructure and partnering with countries across centrally and Central and Western Asia and then by sea toward uh, the Mediterranean and Europe has already been an ongoing uh, process over the last year or so. Um, and I think that the, one of the key themes that you'll find in the speech, and I'm going to have to go and reread that mammoth tome, in English, my uh, Chinese really isn't up to this. Rather you than me. Uh, thanks, Bruce. Well, you know, I, I take perverse delight in reading. I read the, the the South African National Development Plan from cover to cover too. <laughs> um, there's something about me that makes me do this. Um, the, the thing that you should draw from the uh, from his speech, other than uh, the rejuvenation and the centrality of the party, is the centrality of China in the world hierarchy. Uh, That's a little different than saying Chinese armies are going to march forward in all directions, conquering everything uh, that's in front of them, but you you certainly are not going to expect to see an end to the Chinese efforts in the South China Sea, in those uh, artificial and uh, expanded islands that serve as as military outposts in a, and certainly in a contested region. 
you're not going to see uh, any pullback from China's effort to be much more important in global international, sorry, international economic uh, institutions, World uh, Trade Organization, IMF, World Bank, and so forth. Uh, what you're seeing is a sense that China now is reasserting its natural centrality under the heavens that was a hallmark of Chinese philosophy, uh, political, economic philosophy, really since the 8th and ninth centuries. Could we, with China striving to be increasingly more prominent on the global stage, should we be worried at all about a potential conflict, even economic conflicts, with the United States? We've seen Trump sort of espousing very sort of nationalist economic ideals as well as being quite irresponsible when it comes to potential conflicts. Should we be worried at all um, with, with the potential run-in with Trump's administration and the U.S. government? Uh, I wouldn't use the word worried, but I would certainly use the two words, attentive to and the, th- and the third word, concerned, or the third and fourth word, uh, concerned about. Um, the Chinese economy is going to keep growing. There's no real expectation uh, that there'll be a mass uh, collapse of any kind, uh, even though they're going to have a major demographic problem uh, soon because with the one-China policy that was one, sorry, the one-child policy that was in effect for many years, they're suddenly going to be caught in that trap uh, where there simply won't be as many workers uh, in the prime of their working life as that they should have, and certainly not enough people to support uh, social benefits for the elderly. But you should expect that the Chinese economy will continue to be strong. You should expect, however, sadly, that the Donald Trump vision of U.S.-China relations is going to continue to be contentious, even though Donald Trump's policies seem to want to pull back from uh, exerting its natural, the U.S.'s natural impact on global economic issues. He's obviously uh, looking at a a one-to-one, one-country-to-one-country set of economic plans. Uh, None of these much larger multinational uh, trade and economic negotiations. Uh, And if that's the case, then you begin to see a China that, uh, if you look at all the news magazines and the more scholarly publications as well, um, they're pointing to Xi Jinping as the next leader or the current leader, the most important leader in the world. That's, that's quite a come down if you're an American president. It must make him feel very unhappy. <laughs> Brooks, we don't have too much more time, so let's just jump across the sea a little bit and talk about Japan. Mm. Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was re-elected uh, with a supermajority recently. I think it was even within the last day or so. And I was wondering if you could just start by giving us the sort of context in Japan, um, the political context going into this election. Yeah, I mean, this this is important, and as far as I can tell, was barely reported in South Africa, except in the inner pages of some of the, the, the more expensive newspapers. Uh, Shinzo Abe um, is out of Japanese uh, political royalty. Um, his father was the, uh, the Secretary General, uh, effectively, of the Liberal Democratic Party, which has largely ruled the country since, uh, it, since its foundation in the early 1950s. And his grandfather, on his mother's side, was prime minister 
uh, early in Japan's economic recovery, and before that, he was a um, let's put it this way: he was he was a member of the War Cabinet during World War II, which put him in uh, less than a pleasant uh, odor with the Americans during the occupation. Uh, but Shinzo Abe leads the Liberal Democratic Party in what is clearly a center-right orientation. And when you say supermajority, that means that together with his allies in the Komeito uh, party, um, they are in a position now, if they so choose, to actually uh, propose alterations to the Constitution. This is the post-war Constitution, the so-called peace Constitution. Has, has that Constitution been changed since, world, since the end of World War II? I think there have been a couple of words here and there, but in large aspect, no. Um, what this means is that given Shinzo Abe's idea that the Japanese military should be allowed more freedom of action, should be allowed to participate more in uh, international peacekeeping as well as peacemaking operations, and can be more assertive in dealing with, for example, North Korea, um, this is going to, going to provoke a furious debate in Japan but given the supermajority that he appears to have, I haven't seen the final statistics, you know, the final count, but it's almost certainly he's going to have enough votes to achieve it if he choose, chooses to do it. That's going to provoke a certain uh, serious uh, discussion in the country. But remember, the people who lived through World War II, the people who were, who were adults just after the war, these are very old people now, for the most part. Many of them have died off, and the new generation, people your age and certainly younger than me, um, they don't have quite the same allergy uh, to the military uh, that they might have had 50 years ago. Um, and um, you're going to see an assertive Japan, you're going to see an assertive China, and we're not setting up too much to say that's going to be the uh, one of the great issues to watch for in the next half decade or more. It seems actually quite interesting. It reminds me of some of the some of the countries and elections we've seen in the U.S. for one and across Europe and other places where mm. is there a similar increase, increasing sort of nationalistic sentiment that might want to change this within the public, that might want to change this long-term pacifism that Japan Japan has led? Well, that's what I was saying earlier. You're going to, you're going to see a debate, but I think the winners in that debate are going to be the people who, who lean Shinzo Abe's way, and you're going to see slowly maybe, and not a, not within the next, certainly next few days, uh, but you're going to see an alteration in policy, you're going to see a change in uh, in, in the instructions given to the Japan Self-Defense Force, you notice the way it, the Army is called, Self-Defense Force, uh, and then I think it's probably fair to say they'll bring forward this debate over changing that peace constitution. Jay Brooks Spector, Daily Maverick uh, Associate Editor, thank you very much for joining us, and we look forward to speaking to you soon. It's a pleasure. Anytime, Greg. Cheers. Let's. I think it would be a little bit remiss today if we didn't talk about one of these big processes that's going on within South Africa um, that I think will have long-term implications across the country, and I'm sure some of our readers have been following this issue, which is the, the Life Esedemeni arbitration process that's happening here in Johannesburg. Have you been following it? Yeah, I have. 
Uh, but you have been following it. You have been like working on it. So yeah, I, I've I've been dipping in when I can when I can into the into the process, and I think. It's important for us just to remember how this sort of thing started. It was, I think, late 2015 in, in December when, even before that, actually, patients of about 1,700-odd um, mentally mm. ill, menta- critically mentally ill um, psychotic patients at Life Estadamani's halting facilities, which the government had had a long-standing public-private partnership with to look after these patients who we were essentially wards of the state. The government decided to proceed with this plan to deinstitutionalize, I think for, for lack of a better word, deinstitutionalize these patients. And the plan was to either send them to home care so they could go, go and live with their family and be, be around their community, mm-hmm. or to send them to NGOs ac- across the province, which the government would then pay for. These NGOs take care of them. And in effect, that could save the provincial uh, Department of Health a bit of money. The families, NGOs, uh, psychologists, a whole range of civil society experts and, and family members repeatedly warned the government and warned them against, against proceeding with this plan saying that the, while deinstitutionalization and community-based care is primarily, it is a national, a national policy, that national policy only envisages the implementation in around 2020 or something like that. Nothing close to sort of when they were doing it mm. um, and then they actually implemented the plan in about June last year so they sent all these patients out, out to NGOs or home-based care and it was a disaster they weren't cared for these NGOs weren't licensed they didn't have the food the medication the resources or the skills to look after these patients who were who were really in, in quite deep care of of I guess you know, close monitoring um, from healthcare professionals. And so now what we know is through this, there's an arbitration that started between the government, the state and the families to avoid lengthy legal process where instead of the families or the relatives of these guys going to court, you know, and trying to claim compensation, mm-hmm. which could be very, I guess, divisive and, and perhaps lead to more anger and take a very long time. This arbitration is set up to help, led by the former Deputy uh, Deputy Chief Justice Dikhal Mosineke. It's set up to really help provide truth, justice, a sense of closure for some of these families, as well yeah. as decide on the question of, of what sort of compensation they should now be entitled to. But I think... The key things that we've learnt so far in this in this arbitration, which is it was supposed to last for three weeks, we're already in its third week. It's going to be it should end end at the end of this week, but it's likely going to have to be postponed a little bit. We've learnt that a total of one hundred at least one hundred and forty one patients died as a result of this move, which is like you know three or four marikanas, mm. which is crazy, and. We've learnt a lot more about how much pain the families went through, you know, trying to find their loved ones when they weren't even told which NGO they've been, they've been sent to. How the government and NGO leaders arrogantly and insultingly dismissed their concerns and really sent, like left their loved one, loved ones, these, these patients who were essentially the most needy people in society, really, um, left them basically to rot and to, to either to die or for their health to severely decline. But one of the, or some of the key things that we haven't learnt are what the actual government leaders who, who led this process thought about it, why they did it. So the former MEC, um, Matlangu, mm. she isn't even in the country, supposedly. She was the one who led this process. But is it true that, uh, 
uh, he he he's willing to to te- to to testify. She, we don't know what she thinks as yet. Um, we haven't heard much from her at, at this moment. We've had, there are two other high, high place officials involved. I think it's, um, Dr. Celebano and Dr. Manamala, I think, uh, Manamala. Mm. And they, those three are the key sort of architects of this project. And, uh, the former deputy, former deputy chief justice just today actually said that we're going to keep this process going on until they're here and actually will account for what they've done and answer our questions. Yeah. But, it's quite sad that even when the Gauteng Premier, Dave Makura, the Health Minister, Aaron Motsualedi, says this process has got their full support, they've appointed a very senior South African to lead it. Even then, we still don't have the right officials coming to answer the questions we need to ask them, which is why did they do this? When they were told so many times that Not it could, it could have it. deadly consequences or severe consequences. Yeah. And a lot of the families are now starting to get a bit frustrated. They've been going through this thing, and then the officials, either from NGOs or government who have appeared, the families accuse them of lying, accuse them of not being sincere, accuse them of coming with crocodile tears. And I think it's going to be one to watch. It's going to be very important to see whether when we have such a tragedy, or what some people might call a massacre, whether we are able to achieve some sort of semblance of justice for for the victims and for those for those loved ones of the victims or like so many other situations in the country if you think of you know a lot of the issues we're raising about apartheid uh, right now in terms of both economic and and violent crimes in terms of what happened in Marikana yeah if this would just be yet another whitewash where perpetrators are let off the hook for committing these bodies essentially gross human rights violations yeah, it will be interesting to see how this like uh, transpires. You can check some of our work on that on dailymaverick.co.za. Buzleto, thank you so much for coming in today. It's all the time we have. Yeah, it, it was a pleasure. It was great being here. Thank you very much. Please download, um, share the podcast. You can tweet us your thoughts on at dmshowza. We look forward to speaking to you next week. Stay tuned. This is cliffcentral.com.